1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Peter Krishnagyar, your host. Today, we're speaking with Brian Purnell about his new book, Fighting Jim Crow in the County of Kings, the Congress of Racial Equality in Brooklyn. Brian, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: I really enjoyed the book, and anyone that's interested in um, the, the new growth field in civil rights history, which is the um, history of the movement in the North, will be definitely be interested in your book. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit first about uh, yourself and how you came to the project?
0: Well, I grew up in New York City, uh, specifically in in the Coney Island and Brighton Beach sections of Brooklyn, and I went to undergraduate at Fordham University in the Bronx. I majored in history and African-American studies, and I had some really great professors there, Um, a theologian named Mark Chapman, a historian named... Uh, Claude Mangum, another historian named um, uh, Irma Watkins Owens, who wrote a really important book on West Indians in New York in the early 20th century called Blood Relations. And I studied a lot with a, a, his, a social historian and a political historian named Mark Nason, um, who's also uh, a lifelong New Yorker and uh, and an activist and a community organizer. And Mark's classes were just um, electrifying and exciting and really opened my mind up to a lot of things that I um, was always interested in but never knew about. And uh, he would assign us research papers and um, he would assign us these great books and I to read in class. And I came across a footnote in one of the books um, about all of these demonstrations that had occurred in New York City uh, in the 1960s against demonstrations to open jobs in uh, the construction industry for African-Americans and Puerto Ricans. And it was just a footnote in the book. And I, I I'd never heard anything about that. I never heard about um, I never heard about uh, protests against racism in New York City. I never heard about protests um, during the 60s, during the civil rights movement outside of the South. So I just followed on the, the that footnote. I really just started doing research in the New York Times as an undergrad. And that's how I started doing this book. I, I, I wrote a paper as an undergrad and that paper turned, I guess, into kind of a senior year thesis as an undergrad. And I, I, one thing that Mark Mason encouraged all of his students to do was to do interviews with people. Um, so he encouraged me to call up this activist that he knew in Brooklyn who was in, involved in the 60s and ask him if I could talk to him about discrimination in the construction trades industry. And um, as an undergrad, I, you know, I must've done about three or four interviews um, and I just kept, I kept working on it in graduate school. And then um, when I grad when I finished my PhD as a as a new professor, first at Fordham and now at Bowdoin College, I just kept working on it until I published it as a book. But that's how I came to it. It was really just an interest from reading a book and not knowing about something and wanting to learn more.
1: Right. Well, it's, you know, it's, uh, as I said, we don't think about um, we don't think about the North or New York City when we think about the civil rights movement, typically, or at least the public doesn't. Um, uh, I, I want to actually read your first uh, page because it, it um, I think it sets up beautifully uh, your story and gets us into these historiographical questions. Um, so I'm going to read this and then I'd like you to talk a little bit about where your uh, story fits into the, uh, the literature, the professional literature. <laughs> you write, on February 3rd, 1964, one of the largest civil rights demonstrations in U.S. history occurred. Nearly half a million students boycotted a racially segregated municipal public school system as parents and activists demanded a plan for comprehensive desegregation. Ten years after the Supreme Court's Brown v. Board of Education decision had declared racially segregated public schools unconstitutional, this city's government had failed to desegregate the school system. The integration movement rallied behind a Christian minister, a man known for his eloquent, trenchant sermons against racial discrimination and poverty. He transformed his church into a movement headquarters, which organized racially integrated freedom schools, quote unquote, throughout the city. The man and the movement made history, but this minister's name was Milton, not Martin, and his church was in Brooklyn, New York, not Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. So I just love the way you you set that up because it it you know it, it captures uh, very rightly this contradiction between the images that we have of the civil rights movement in the popular culture and what historians know and what historians have been writing a lot about recently, which is the movement in the North.
0: Yes. So I have, um, I guess I have my dissertation advisor. His his name was Jeffrey Sammons. He's a historian. He works, he teaches at NYU. He actually just wrote a really co co-authored a really good book on the early civil rights movement, um, in, during World War One, he wrote a really good book on uh, black soldiers from a New York regiment, the 369th. But anyway, one of the things that 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 Dr. Sammons always tried to encourage me to do was to, to write in such a way that um, kind of grabbed readers' attentions, doesn't give away the whole story, and maybe kind of intrigues the reader a little bit. So... That's that's what I did in that paragraph. I really wanted to try to um, play around with what readers already know about the civil rights movement. And I wanted to give them this vague description of 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 a protest movement that occurred in a really big city and that had this really charismatic minister um, and then tell the reader that it was New York that we we're talking about, or that it was Brooklyn specifically, that we're not talking about the South. And when I when I wrote um, the book, there had already begun to be a, a very, I won't say small, but there had begun to emerge this um, percolating, um, uh, amount of literature, this kind of percolating interest in civil rights movement activism outside of the South, and there were about maybe half a dozen or so really good books that had come out. Um, Martha Biondi's book "To Stand and Fight," which is about New York City from the forty mid forties through the mid fifties, uh, Clarence Taylor's very good two very good books. One called "The Black Churches of Brooklyn." And the other one is a biography of Milton Galamison, a very important minister in Brooklyn, uh, who was an activist in the 60s. Robert Self in 2003 published a very important book uh, about Oakland. Matthew Countryman in 2006 published a very good book about civil rights and black power in Philadelphia. And then, of course, in 2003, there's Gene Theo Harris and Camozzi Woodward Woodard's co-edited uh, Freedom North, which is a collection of essays about uh, civil rights struggles out, outside of the South. So there's about, I'd say, half a dozen or so people who are really interested in this question of what did the movement look like outside of the South? What did it look like in local communities? And what were the effects of civil rights activism outside of the South before the late 1960s and before the black power movement, which is when most people who are interested in the history of the civil rights movement outside of the South, that's usually when they turn their attention to that to that theater, so to speak. Right. And there's even one of a way earlier book. It came out in the early 90s, actually, of by James Ralph on a book about Martin Luther King in Chicago uh, in, in in 65 66 and 67 so so there is there was some literature there was some there were some books there were some people interested in this question of the movement outside of the south and it was really just starting to to take off as as a field um, you know ten years after Freedom North so now we have Tom Segre uh, very good synthesis kind of overview book of the movement outside of the South uh, called Sweet Land of Liberty. And there's a lot more scholarship about uh, women and radicals and early precursors to, to black power that occur in the, in the late 50s and the 60s and concentration on civil rights and labor and a lot of stuff on schools outside of the South. It's really... It's really an extraordinary time to be interested in history of the civil rights movement and to be working on it. And I guess I would just say one other thing. Um, a lot of the, a lot of, I think a lot, of the, um, a lot of the energy behind this scholarship came from some really exciting work that Charles Payne and John Dittmer and William Chafe did on the South which was to raise questions about local communities and local history. So the book that really excited me a great deal when I was a graduate student was Charles Payne's book, I've Got the Light of Freedom, the community organizing tradition uh, in Mississippi. And that is just, it's it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Uh, it's exciting. It's about local people. It's about community organizing people who are involved in civil rights activism in Mississippi way before the 1960s and their families and their communities and the, and the incredible violence they experience and the importance of women. And I really think that a lot of scholars who work on the North drew inspiration from the scholarship and the books that looked at local communities in the South. Yeah, well, uh, your book
1: is, you know, uh, 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 corollary to that. I mean, uh, it's obviously that influence. Um, um, It's a really good case study of a local group and gets into all of the sort of questions that that raises when you get when you when you put the magnifying glass on people on the grass at the grassroots level instead of looking at. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and all these uh, sort of elite figures. Um, and I want to talk more about that later on. I, I wonder if you could say just one more thing before we move on about um, how this literature that's coming out now is for the people that are, you know, not professional stories that are listening and how, it, you know, the sort of dynamic that it's working against, too, in terms of the narrative we have. You know, you quote Julian Bond, this master narrative that we have about the good and the bad civil rights era and, and how we sort of break up this period chronologically, whether we should think about it as a long movement, what that term means um, because your book also adds to that and, and, and sort of widens our understanding about um, how to think about the uh, black freedom struggle.
0: So Julian Bond, who was a leader of the student nonviolent coordinating committee Uh, which was predominantly in the South and it was predominantly college students. He had this uh, line or this idea. um, I don't know when he articulated it. I, 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 I first read about it in Charles Payne's book, I've Got the Light of Freedom, he had, Julian Bond had this idea that there was what, uh, a normative narrative, a master narrative, rather, a master narrative of the civil rights movement's history. And the basic outline of that narrative, a lot, a lot of us know, not everybody, but it usually starts sometime in the mid-1950s. We are coming up, on an anniversary of an event that usually we, that we usually associate with the beginning of the civil rights movement, December 1st in 1955, when Rosa Parks, when, when the Montgomery uh, police department in Alabama arrests Rosa Parks for civil disobedience on a public bus. Um, And from December of 1955 through um for over a year, um, through the end of uh, 1956 and into 1957, there's this massive bus boycott, the Montgomery bus boycott. Some people put the starting line of the civil rights movement uh, a little bit earlier, that we people look at two other earlier moments. Brown versus Board of Education, May 1954, when the Supreme Court declares that racial segregation is unconstitutional. And the murder of Emmett Till, a young teenager from Chicago who is visiting family in Money, Mississippi in 1955. So there's these moments, there's these three moments in the South that a lot of histories, a lot of synthesis histories or kind of narrative histories of the civil rights movement, that's usually when they start. And it's usually set. You know, the the story of the civil rights movement, the the master narrative, starts in the mid 1950s. It's set in the South, and it forms around pretty big named people, especially uh, Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, the Rosa Parks story is 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 really unfortunate because it's often just a uh, a preface to introduce King. Um, when in reality, Rosa Parks just has this amazing life and career of her own that yeah. um, moves all over the country. And you know, Gene Theo Harris's book on the radical Rosa Parks is just an amazing, amazing recent book on how complicated and multifaceted uh, this history is. But. This grand narrative or this master narrative is usually starts in the South. It centers around people like King. It focuses a lot on Washington, D.C., too, on John F. Kennedy's administration, on national speeches regarding uh, civil rights and the president's response to violence in Birmingham in 1963, on Kennedy's assassination, and then Johnson's uh, um, taking over of the presidency, the passing of major legislation, the, the the master narrative follows these national events, and it focuses on focuses on major organizations and major figures. And when you get to the mid nineteen sixties it becomes a declension narrative. It turns into a story about decline and about um, uh, factions forming within the movement. And that story about the decline usually involves the rise of the black power movement, the frustration and disaffection of young black people within the movement, and again, because the, the, the master narrative focuses on kind of individual personalities, this is when Stokely Carmichael comes to the scene in the national story. Um, and the civil rights movement begins to fall apart and fracture and move in all sorts of different directions and that's also the time when the north comes into the story it's the late 1960s it's black power um and the story can then focus on organizations like the black panther party for self-defense so and then the the, the grand narrative ends either there uh with the in fighting between civil rights and black power, or it will go to 1968 and end with King's uh, assassination. So there's a lot of really good, exciting, interesting, wonderfully written, and visually captivating material that follows this narrative. The two things that come to mind are the Eyes on the Prize series, which uh, if even a- any revisionist historian would agree that that is a, a really important source that that documentary series the eyes on the prize and then there's the taylor branch trilogy on america in the king years um so you know this this master narrative this it's it 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 does a lot of really interesting and exciting storytelling um but there's some problems with it when you consider that it is so heavily focused on the south it it doesn't bring the north in until much later in the story and when the north comes in to the master narrative the north is really this place where the movement goes to die it's this place where there's there is no interracial activism there's no nonviolence. The North is always presented as a place where nonviolence just won't work. Um, And it's this place that's really seen as the antithesis of the civil rights movement. So the North equals black power. The South equals civil rights. The South is this place where, um, where major legislation where, where a movement that passes major legislation, which changes the country, can come into existence, and the North in the grand narrative gives us this muddied, complicated, antagonistic policy of affirmative action, and that's in the grand narrative, the North really uh, becomes a a, a an, an opposite to 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 the South, and I think that the scholarship. Or the, the research that that I that I did and that a lot of other people that I mentioned earlier in the interview do, um, has done has really tried to um, to show that that's wrong I mean that's just the wrong way to think about the north it's the wrong way to think about civil rights activism in America and and maybe more importantly it's the wrong way to think about the history of racial discrimination in our country and um, so I think that's what some of the, you know, those are some of the really important interventions or corrections that that my book tries to make and that other people who write about the North try to make in their books.
1: Right. I mean, in this narrative, the North is, you know, a place of, of racial harmony and. The, by focusing about by focusing on people like the Black Panthers and and talking about the North only when we get to the late sixties, the sort of effect of this and scholars have looked at how you know political figures, um, uh, you know, starting in the early eighties, really adopt this narrative to to for, for very political ends, right? To to uh, to essentially counter these movements that are that are aimed at uh the de facto segregation that we find in the north, right? Um, uh, and that's that's where your story begins, right? And this is where this is where all this this literature sort of dwells is the this view we have in our mind and the popular I- I impression that the South is a place of de jure uh, Jim Crow, right? And the, no- the north is the Jure Jim Crow's weak cousin, in Robert Self's you know term. Um, you have this great quote from James Baldwin, right? And the attitude of people in the north is, well, we have segregation here, but nobody did it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, and these mo- these movements, uh, you know, what the effect of bringing in these movements that are that are ag- agitating and and challenging segregation in the north, uh, in the postwar area era and earlier. Uh, complicates that narrative. It blurs these lines. You know, it 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 throws these these neat uh, dividing lines into question. So, uh, why don't you? With that said, why don't you give us the lay of the land before the period you investigate? Tell us about Bedford Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, and you know where is it, and, and what does it look like?
0: So, Bedford Stuyvesant uh, is this community that sits in kind of the, literally in the heart of of Brooklyn, it's kind of, well, and Brooklyn itself, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, or or Kings County, uh, New York, is one of the five boroughs of New York City, and it is by the, well, it was its own city until 1898, when there's a consolidation and a merger of the five counties or five boroughs that become greater New York City. So Brooklyn has this really interesting culture and character, uh, which even today sees itself as different or separate from um, Manhattan, especially. I mean, you know, Brooklyn is always considered to be part of New York City, but I think there is some lingering attitude of how Brooklyn could stand apart. Absolutely, and had always had stood apart for hunt you know hundred over hundreds you know over two hundred years, maybe um two hundred and fifty years as its own as its own place um so in in the in the twentieth century um, Brooklyn, like a lot of other places, a lot of other cities in the United States, experiences two uh, almost simultaneous social changes and, and economic changes. One is, it, is its manufacturing and, and its industrial production expand a great, great deal. Uh, and this really happens tremendously around World War II. Um, and the second thing that happens with the addition of the expanding manufacturing and industrial and jobs sector is very large migrations of Southerners uh, white and black, uh, from from in in New York's case, from Virginia and the Carolinas and Florida, um, and a little bit from maybe Tennessee or 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 Kentucky, but really from the Eastern Seaboard, there are mass migrations of Southerners and large numbers of African Americans who move to uh, to cities all throughout the country to these. Um, emerging industrial and manufacturing um, arsenals of democracy, uh, Roosevelt called them during the war. So the the, the social demography of Brooklyn is going to change pretty dramatically um, from the early 1900s until about 1950. Um, the black population in Brooklyn is going to grow uh, in, in a pretty significant way, and it's not going to stop until the 19 uh, it's not going to stop in the 20th century. I mean, by 1970, uh, you know, Brooklyn has, I think over, and I'm not, I'm not, I might get the number a little bit wrong, but by 1970, Brooklyn, I think has 656,000 black people in in Kings County, New York, in Brooklyn, New York. And, you know, that's a, and Bradford Stuyvesant in 1960 uh, has about uh, 350,000 of those black people are living in Bedford Stuyvesant, this neighborhood in the middle of central Brooklyn so if Brooklyn is this pretty large, you know, 70 square mile or so um, city within the city of New York Bedford Stuyvesant uh, is this pretty small, um, incredibly overcrowded um, overwhelmingly black city within the city of Brooklyn And it's also a magnet for um, immigrants from the Anglophone West Indies, uh, Barbados, Jamaica, Trinidad. uh, And it's also uh, drawing people from Puerto Rico uh, at this time, too. So uh, when black people are moving to. Brooklyn or to New York City, there are very few places where they can live, and this is where what that 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 idea that you were talking about the de jure and the de facto segregation becomes um, becomes really a a a useless idea. There's you know to so to divide American segregation between saying that in a place like mississippi or alabama racism is real because it's part of the law that by law you can have black and white people separate in in everything in mississippi but in new york there is no law uh that says that blacks and whites have to be separate and now that's true i mean that is that is a fact and 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 in fact New York uh, is one of the first is the first state to pass anti-discrimination law in, in employment uh, in 1945. It's the first state to outlaw racial discrimination in employment. It becomes the first state to outlaw racial discrimination in the uh, private housing market as well. But here's the irony. it It doesn't matter, right? Like you, Right. And that's no. one of the, the powerful ironies about uh, racial discrimination in in the North or in a, in a place like New York. You, you don't need to have laws segregating black people in certain housing and in certain schools and in certain businesses or in certain jobs. You don't need those laws because people do it anyway. Right. Um, and so what we see in New York uh, by the, the by 1960s, you have hundreds of thousands of black people congested and crowded into an area of Brooklyn that has very old uh, housing stock that's bursting at the seams. Uh, that you have people who are able to move into the World War II job economy, and then very quickly with the recession that follows the war they're the first fired out of those manufacturing jobs they're living in a city that's going through that's beginning to go through changes in which it's losing its manufacturing and its an industrial base the brooklyn navy yard slowly begins to close its doors in the early 1960s 1964 there's big downscaling of work at the brooklyn navy yard and by 1966 the navy yard's gone
1: yeah, I think between 19, 1944 and uh, or is it 1952 and 1960, the state as a whole loses more than a quarter million jobs in manufacturing.
0: Yeah. And yeah. So and and the newcomers um, are the hardest hit by this. and And black newcomers are are hit particularly hard because they don't have the freedom to move anywhere they want to move, they're, they're limited in their housing choices, they're limited to black ghettos, their schools are, the, the schools of their children are becoming way overcrowded and way under-resourced, and the state is not addressing those issues as issues that stem from patterns of segregation. The laws that exist to deal with racial discrimination are 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 weak and ineffective at best because they rely on moral suasion rather than relying on a judicial process and an adjudication process that makes it undesirable to discriminate. And all of these things are happening in a time when African-American population is Surging in New York when white population is declining um, by nineteen eighty Brooklyn loses about a million uh white residents who are able to move to other parts of the city or who are really able to move into outlying suburbs and all of these patterns are happening. Um, by the the, the mid twentieth century by the early nineteen sixties, and that's that's the world that Brooklyn Core steps into when it comes into existence in nineteen sixty, and and those are going to be the types of problems, the types of political and social problems that this interracial chapter of activists uh, tries to to change.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the other thing is that we, New York leads the country because of. You know, Robert Moses, the state parks commissioner, leads the country in road building and these highways, um, as you said, you know, take all these mostly middle class uh, white residents in Brooklyn and other areas out to the suburbs Um, at the same time that the city is busily demolishing neighborhoods. Uh, through urban renewal and replacing those jobs in manufacturing with, you know, knocking down the slaughterhouses around the UN, putting up the UN, and knocking down all these these neighborhoods and putting in um, commercial high rises and luxury apartments and replacing the the old working class jobs that uh, people were coming north for uh, with finance and and big law firms and and the like, and then at the same time the south. Uh, continues to throw out millions of people um, because they're, these big planters are taking advantage of these New Deal loans and automating. Yep. Um, and that's the this is an, you know really important backdrop. Um, I mean your quotes earlier about you know it's 1940. You say there's 107,000 uh, blacks in Brooklyn, and uh, I had the same number you did. 1970, six hundred fifty six thousand. It's a huge huge increase in, in the similar things going on in Harlem and other black enclaves. Um, and so we had this deindustrializing city and, you know, there's this myth that's grown up. I think anyone that's grown up in the suburbs around the city, like I did, um, has heard this, you know, about old New York and how, um, you know, it's, it's when the, the blacks come that, that it all goes to pot. Right. Um, instead of looking at it in terms of a, a structural phenomenon. Um, I want to read. There's a there's a quote. You have all these letters that come in from from white Brooklyn residents to the to the Brooklyn core. Uh, there's this letter here uh, on page 109. Uh Since the colored people came to Brooklyn, we have rape, muggings and robberies. It is up to you and your race to get after this type of hoodlum and help us so we can have Brooklyn as in years gone by. Uh, Teach them not to be horrid white haters. They only go to their shops. They only hire colored taxi drivers, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it goes on. And you begin the story by talking about these quotes from Pete Hamill and and Mark Elliott talking about old Brooklyn and, you know, how it was the place that it was the kind of place that America fought for in World War II where, quote, You know, everyone had the right to work, live, play alongside their fellow man, regardless of race or creed. And then you contrast it rather beautifully, I think, with this story of John Hope, John Franklin, the famous historian, right, who uh, tries to buy a home in all white flatbush when he gets accepted to Brooklyn College, which, you know, is such a noteworthy event in itself. The New York Times puts it on the front page and he he can't get in anywhere. He has to finally rely on on a white colleague to, to buy a home.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, Brooklyn um it has this really mythical uh, very romantic image in American in Americans imagination of of the early of the mid 20th century. Um and there's a great line, there's a great idea um I can I'm I'm blanking a bit on his name. I think it's Peter Novick. Um that might be wrong, but there's a journalist. There's a there's a, a very well known journalist, Pete Hamill. Uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't Pete Hamill. It, uh, and and he grew up in Brooklyn. This guy grew up in Brooklyn, and um, he goes through um, all the different ideas of the romantic image of Brooklyn in the mid twentieth century, and he says something like, "For all of this." Uh, togetherness that we had in Brooklyn, there was a a lot of separation, and it was one of the only ideas I found um, from a, a popular writer um, talking about the romantic image of Brooklyn in the nineteen forties and fifties that said, you know, that there was a lot of there was a lot of separation and segregation, and for poor people, a lot of misery in Brooklyn. Um, yeah. So, so you know, you have in the in the in the nineteen forties when there is this change, this this population change coming to Brooklyn, uh, in the form of 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 black newcomers, um, Puerto Ricans, um, and lots of people coming to seek work for, in the wartime industry. Um, in the post war period, there's the story of Jackie Robinson and the integration of Major League Baseball, and there is this idea, and, and, and I don't want to say that it's not true because every um, myth in some way is, is built upon some truths or at least some ideas about truth. Right. Um, New York City in general and, and, and Brooklyn in particular, it, it is possible to be a blue-collar working class person and have if you're if you're white you can have options for lots of different types of housing uh, and even if you're even if you're not white and you're circumscribed to a particular area it's it, you know it, it's still in the post war period because there's explosions in the constructions of public housing during the Great Depression, and because New York City is just constantly a magnet for people, you know, people are able, working people and blue-collar people are able to live uh, in ways that that are harder for them to do in either the rural communities that they came from, their European homelands, um, uh, the islands in the Caribbean where they came from. There is There is opportunity in New York the the problem with this romantic myth about brooklyn which is all about you know drinking egg creams and playing stickball and about how everybody rooted for jackie robinson is that it leaves absolutely no room for franklin john hope franklin's story and john hope franklin's story like you briefly mentioned is that you have this um this this nationally you know nationally known Figure this somewhat of a celebrity academic. I mean, he's the first black uh, historian to chair the history department at an all-white university, which is Brooklyn College at the time, 1963. And it makes the front page of the New York Times. But like you said, and like I wrote about in the book, he he can't he can't buy a house wherever he wants in Brooklyn. Um, his Uh, mortgage lending agency the real estate agency both places try to steer him out of homes around brooklyn college's campuses which are predominantly white areas at the time so the problem with the myth of of the romantic era of brooklyn's history is 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 one that it leaves out the very real history of racial segregation and 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 racism and two, it sets up this other story, which you alluded to, um, which is that when 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 Brooklyn and New York start to experience some serious social and political problems uh because the city is getting overcrowded, because the city is not dealing well with Uh, Inequality, resource inequality with things like sanitation or public schools, um, because neighborhoods are becoming overcrowded, uh, because poverty levels are increasing amongst uh, poor, predominantly black people in the city, when you have all these things start to happen, um, people, especially uh, white New Yorkers, especially people who left the city, immediately begin to identify the reason for these social problems as the culture and the behavior of, of the newcomers. Right, It becomes a very easy, simple, powerful idea to blame excessive trash, failing schools, high crime rates, all of these social problems that Brooklyn and other cities and New York begin to experience becomes very easy to blame that on the behavior and culture of the people who are now living in those areas.
1: Right. Instead of thinking about the industrial and the capital flight that that, you know creates the situation. Right. Well, so maybe this is a good place to start talking about um, Brooklyn Core and what they're doing because this is some of the first things that they get involved with, and this is you know in the early 60s, so it's it's 15 years after, right, uh, Franklin's story. Um, and the New York has just passed the Fair Housing Practices Law, you know, it, 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 which ban, sets up, becomes a federal model. It, it's the first uh, uh, state law to ban discrimination in the private housing market. Uh, yet, you know, 10 years earlier, as you know, the Supreme Court outlaws the racial covenants that we see in suburbs around the country, and this does nothing to prevent You know, the suburbs from basically remaining 100 percent white, more or less. Um, So the core really gets to start by trying to do the the painstaking, difficult work of of going about and getting information and and trying to solve at the individual
0: level these cases of housing discrimination, right, which are so important to... Right, yeah. The the first major issue that Brooklyn Core tackles is housing discrimination. It's, and I think that that's for a couple of reasons. Um, one, um, it's you know Brooklyn, Brooklyn, the Brooklyn chapter of Core you know, kind of sets up uh, a a desk in an office in the middle of Bedford Stuyvesant, and they really just they start by just tackling the issues that people bring to them. And the one issue that people bring to them over and over and over and over again in 1960, 1961, uh, is that they, they tried to rent an apartment outside of Bedford-Stuyvesant. Uh, and they saw the apartment advertised in the newspaper or in a sign in the window. And when they went when they went to uh, inquire about renting the apartment, suddenly the apartment was no longer available. And this happens so many times to certain individuals that they suspect uh, they suspect that landlords and realtors are discriminating against them because they're black. So they bring that issue to Brooklyn Court and Brooklyn Court initiates a. a a pretty traditional uh, protest movement or a pretty traditional demonstration movement, which is called um, uh, sandwich testing. I don't know where that term came from, but the sandwich testing method would be when a black person suspects that they are discriminated against in housing, uh, the, 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 the activist organization in this case, Brooklyn core will send a white A couple or a white tester, they called them, to inquire about renting that apartment. And they would always make the white individual or the white couple. So if a black person is discriminated against, suspects discrimination, they would send a black. Uh, person, if it was a married couple, they would send a married couple. They would always make the white testers a little bit less desirable than the actual black candidate. So they would have the white testers make less money. They would have them have more children. They might even have a white uh, tester as a woman uh, be a single mother, whereas the black Uh, the black woman who wants the apartment is married and so on. They would have all sorts of ways to see if there was racial discrimination at work in this particular, in this case. And that's how they would uncover instant individual instances of racial discrimination. Then they would move in to try to shame or intimidate the landlord or the realtor into renting the apartment to the original black applicant. They would threaten to bring them before the New York State Commission against discrimination. They would threaten to protest and uh, picket and embarrass the individual landlord. And on a piecemeal basis, Brooklyn Corps was able to get some individuals and some families uh, uh, better housing outside of the black ghetto in Brooklyn. (laughs) What's interesting that I found in the book is that they try to attack the problem of racial discrimination on a much bigger scale than just one-on-one individual cases. They try to they try to attack racial discrimination uh, beyond a case-by-case basis, and they're not they're not successful. They're not successful in overturning what they find through their research to be a major instance of housing discrimination at one of the city's largest housing conglomerates, the Left Rack Corporation. Um, They uncover that Left Rack buildings have uh, discriminatory language in their advertisements. It's not as blatant as saying no coloreds allowed, um, but... The 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 left rack corporation will will advertise for its luxury apartments and executive apartments and just a lot of coded language that they did not want uh, black middle class families even to try to move in there. But when black families that did have the money tried to move into some of these left rack buildings, they were immediately told that there were no apartments available. And this was a systematic practice. It happened over and over and over and over again but uh, Brooklyn Corps was unable to mount a successful demonstration against that huge housing conglomerate um, so on an individual case by case basis they had success when they try to attack a system wide or a city wide uh, perpetrator of racial discrimination it's much harder for them to attain a, a tangible victory right. Um, well it's a
1: small organization and, and they you talk about how they're constantly struggling um with the obstacles they face as a as a small you know organization that's desperately in need of manpower and, and capital. Um which is not distinct I think to uh to Brooklyn Core. Um, uh we forget that you know even Martin Luther King's organization was constantly struggling with money. Um but this experience, you say, uh, made the group very uh, tight knit and encouraged them to to want to do more, right? To to think bigger. And, and this goes to Operation Unemployment and uh, the uh, battle to desegregate the schools. Can you talk a little
0: bit about that? Right. Yeah. So so the housing case is really, like you said, it brings this small about you know there's the numbers of Brooklyn Court change. It's a fiercely democratic organization basically if you show up to meetings you can be a, a member of the organization there's no you know there's there's no um, they don't really have a screening process or a probationary period it's a very very democratic group everybody has a say there is an executive council of leaders on the group but it's you know I would say two dozen members and maybe 10 or so, uh, uh, smaller executive leaders of the group, the housing discrimination does bring them together. And one of the fascinating things that I write about in the book is, how, is that that's not easy. It's not easy to have a successful interracial group. And Brooklyn Core, as small as it is, is incredibly diverse. There's there's people of different religions, people of different working or class backgrounds. There's, there's people of different races, Um, there's there's conservatives and there's communists, it's it's not like everybody in this organization thinks the same way. So creating camaraderie and creating an effective activist community requires work. And the housing campaigns achieve that and Brooklyn Core then moves into looking at uh, employment issues and looking at school issues. So the the biggest employment issue that they first try to tackle has to do with a local industry, the Evangers Baking Company. Um, And they mount a a pretty successful boycott campaign with um, a small group of ministers like Milton Galamison and with uh, political community organizers like the Unity Democratic Club, which is a kind of insurgent democratic black political club headed by A guy, a man, a lawyer um, named Thomas Russell Jones and Andrew Cooper. And as a side story, that's the organization that makes it possible for, one, the creation of a congressional district in Brooklyn in 1965, 1966. And then, two, the uh, eventual black Congress representative who comes out of that club becomes the Congress representative from the 12th CD, and that's Shirley Chisholm. Um, so anyway, Operation Unemployment, which tackles racial discrimination at a local industry, the Ebbinger's Baking Company, brings together Brooklyn Corps, ministers, the UDC. It's a very grassroots movement. It's a very successful boycott. Um, and, you know, Brooklyn Corps wins a spot at the negotiating table to achieve what today we would call affirmative action. They didn't call it that then, but that was one of their demands. One of their demands was that three out of five employees at the Ebbinger's Baking Company, uh, three out of five new employees be uh, African-American. And prior to this movement, You know, Ebinger's, again, I I won't go into too much detail, but Ebinger's was a pretty significant local industry. It had retail outlets all throughout Brooklyn and Queens and some in Staten Island. It had baking plants in Brooklyn. It had uh, distribution depots in Brooklyn, a a fleet of uh, shipping trucks that brought the baked goods all throughout the city. I mean, it's one of these. Local, you know, if 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 you're a local business, a local thriving business in New York City, in the 20th century, it's almost like you're you're similar to being a, a small corporation in other places because you have this huge market of over eight million people. Uh, so Edinger's, you know, I, if it, I don't want to make it sound like this was just a, a mom and pop baking store, like this, was right, a, right, it was a huge, huge industry. Uh, in, and it was based in Brooklyn and it didn't hire black people to do much besides janitorial work uh, and a lot of its retail outlets are located in places like Bedford Stuyvesant, like parts of East Flatbush, like parts of Crown Heights. It's located in places that are becoming more, more and more populated with black people and they're not hiring black workers uh, so this protest movement is effective because Brooklyn Corps gets a seat at the negotiating table and Evangers agrees. They agree to hire more black workers. Uh, you know, the the, the the way that that story ends is a bit of a pirate victory. I mean, Ebinger's closes in the 1970s. Um, so, again, it's one of these two step forward, uh, in some ways, two and a half steps back uh, with respects to what um what the civil rights movement is able to achieve, and and the chapter that I write on public education, desegregating public schools in Brooklyn, is this really, um, it's a really, it's a story that is both hopeful and uplifting because of how much energy and how much involvement there is around the issue of of African American families fighting for their children to have better access to good schools in their neighborhoods. Um, It's an incredible story about Brooklyn Corps rallying around one of its members, the the Beebold family, and rallying around them to try to fight to get uh, better schooling for their children. And it's also this really tragic and sad story that is very much a story of the last 60 years of public education. Uh, in places like Brooklyn and New York, which is that low income people and, and racial and ethnic minorities who are who are stuck living in places um, with with other low income people that don't receive uh, adequate services. The schools are are just left for, for dead, basically, and, and those students are left behind. And that's, that's kind of the sad part of the story of the Brooklyn Court protest to desegregate the schools in Brooklyn because there's all of this tremendous energy and there's all of this tremendous momentum. But the only thing that it's able to accomplish is it, it, it it's able to allow that one family to improve their children's educational options. And it really does nothing to address the resource inequality that Brooklyn Corps argues is at the heart of public school segregation in Brooklyn. There's not enough books. It's overcrowded. Uh, Even when the schools are brand new, they're built in areas that funnel uh, two thirds of the population to be black and Puerto Rican. Um, And again, two thirds of that population are going to bring all of the needs that, uh, Low income kids are bringing when their children, when their parents are struggling to find work, when they have unstable housing uh, choices and when they have inadequate access to, to food and health care. And that's all going to center into the school. Um, so even, you know, it, there's questions about the, the physical facilities of schools in predominantly black neighborhoods, how it's crumbling and 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 they're old and they're outdated. But but you know, there's also brand new schools in the nineteen sixties that are suffering from the effects of racial segregation in public education. And in 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 Brooklyn Corps' demonstration, they're not able to they're able to raise awareness, they're able to raise attention, they're able to help one family. They're not able to 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 turn that situation around. And that's, that's been an ongoing story for the past 60 years or more.
1: Right. Well, this is also, again, I mean, taking place within the period where, you know, the city is deindustrializing; It's, it's losing its middle class. It's becoming very much a city of the very rich and, and the very poor. Um, I, I would think that most people also have have, have very little memory at all. Uh, it's not written about much, but the parents and taxpayer movement that organized right. against the desegregation forces in the city was huge, and and the leader, uh, Rosemary Gunning, ran with Buckley in his mayoral um, and his very you know. It's electrifying uh, mayoral candidacy in 1965, so we have this year when there's all of this, uh, federally there's all this uh, civil rights legislation happening, and in New York City which is, you know, in some ways a sort of organizational headquarter for a lot of these groups it's a major source of funding for King's organization and other organizations and uh, and yet, as you say, there's there's this um, stalling out because of these structural things and also because of the 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 difficulty of, of, of getting past de facto segregation. Right.
0: Right.
1: Um, well, I wish we had more time to talk about uh, some of the other things in your book, but I, I think we've taken up a, a lot of your time already. Um, I want to thank you for being on the show. It was a pleasure reading your book. Um, why don't you uh, take us out by telling us about what you're working on now?
0: Well, again, and, you know, again thanks for having me. Um, to the listeners who participated in this, Thank you for for your time. Um, if you do pick up my book, Fighting Jim Crow in the County of Kings, I, I'd love you can email me. Um, 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 you can find me on the Web. I'd love to hear what you think. Um, but, you know, right now I'm working on uh, two different books. One of them is um, a, a, a an oral history or biography of uh, that. If you remember earlier in the interview, I said that I interviewed this activist. Um, uh, the first person that I interviewed, his name is G2 Weusi. Um, And it, that I, the first time I interviewed him was in 2000. And then in 2005, we started doing a series of interviews about his life. And we did that for four years. Um, and G2 Weusi emerged as this very uh, important figure during the community control movement in 1967, 1968, 1969, in the Ocean Hill Brownsville section of Brooklyn. Uh, He became a a really uh, influential um, black nationalist organizer in Brooklyn. Um, And so I spent four years doing interviews with him about his life, Um, all of it, almost all of it, which he spent in Brooklyn. So I'm putting those interviews together as a as an autobiography narrative um, in his voice. And I'm also writing a a larger history of of ghettos uh, in American cities in the 20th century and the ways that ghettos come into existence. And then I focus in that second book uh, on the ghetto, on how in the late 1960s and and 1970s, how people worked very hard to unmake ghettos. There's a tremendous amount of energy uh, from all different sectors of American life directed at transforming ghettos. Um, And then the end of the book talks about uh, what happens to ghettos in the late 20th century and, and the present. Um, So that the name of that book is Unmaking Ghettos. uh, And those are the two things that I'm working on right now. Sounds fascinating. Yeah, thanks. I hope maybe we could do this again when one of them comes out. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Well, Brian, thanks so much again for being with us. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having me.
0: And thanks for the work you do on this show.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much. (laughs) All right. Bye, Brian.
0: Bye.